If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City, one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City. Will you pray with me? He was surprised, Holy One, surprised, surprised to have tested positive for the virus, which is weird because surprised means shocked by something unexpected. But he hadn't been wearing a mask. He hadn't been keeping his distance. He hadn't been taking personal responsibility to avoid large crowds. So how was it that he was surprised? He must not know what that word means. Some of us are pretty angry about it. Things could have been better by now. After all, things are better in places where leaders insisted on the common good instead of individual freedom. We might have been able to attend funerals and not grieve alone. We might have been able to have someone sit with us as we wait in the doctor's office for the diagnosis. Grandparents might have been able to hold the grandbabies they haven't been able to meet yet. Our children might, not, might, might have been able to return to school without serving as the proverbial canary in the coal mine. Yeah, we're angry and sad and frustrated and angry and tired and angry. But also praying for his full recovery because anything less would be to deny his humanity. And we hope he would pray for our full recovery if the roles were reversed. But we're still really, really angry. So for now, we will remind ourselves that there is simply more work to do and that we come from a long line of resilient people of faith. For as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Let our hearts not be hardened, Holy One, but keep us resolved to love one another as Jesus loved us, sacrificing for each other, putting the needs of the many before our own. 
We pray in the name of Jesus, who showed us how to set a good example. Amen. It is my honor to introduce the second speaker of this year's Distinguished Pulpit Series, Sarah Adams Cornell. Sarah is an advocate for Native American culture, education, and rights. She is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and serves as vice president on the board of directors for Sovereign Community School, where she focuses on community engagement. Sarah co-created an intertribal empowerment organization called Matriarch that serves indigenous women in central and northeast Oklahoma. Sarah is the president of the board of directors for the ACLU of Oklahoma, and she also serves on the board of directors for Live Indigenous OK, and worked alongside other native advocates to see Indigenous Peoples Day recognized in Oklahoma City. Sarah is a board member of the Auntie Project, Not Your Mascot, a proud ally member of Central Oklahoma Two-Spirit Society, serves on the leadership team of Women's March OKC, and was activist in residence at the University of Oklahoma. Sarah has worked alongside other advocates to eliminate land-run reenactments and native mascots in Oklahoma City Public Schools, and co-created a program called Oklahoma History Day, a diverse and accurate account of Oklahoma history through statehood. She attended Cotty College and the University of Oklahoma, and has two daughters, Bella and Gabby. Sarah works for her parents' company, Redland Street Me Sheet Metal, and lives in Oklahoma City. Sarah, it is our privilege for you to be with us today. and We trust you'll make us uncomfortable enough to change. Welcome. Heli to saho chifo at Sarah Adams Cornell, Choctaw Hoyosia. So Ishki at Tammy Adams, Sapokni at Dorothy Jefferson, Oklahoma City Atali. Hello, my name is Sarah Adams Cornell. I am a proud Choctaw woman. I am the daughter of Tammy Adams and the granddaughter of Dorothy Jefferson. I live here in Oklahoma City and I'm extremely honored to be here with you today. I want to thank uh, your Reverend Lori Waki for the invitation to be a part of this incredible group of people who are um, talking to your congregation over this month. Um, what an honor it is to be in their company. Um, and I think it's an incredible um, testament to your church um, that this dedication to social justice. And I want you to know that I see you. I see you in the community. I see you at our rallies. I see you putting your lives on the line. I see you um, lifting up your voice for equity and social justice. And to me, that is the testament of doing creator's work. And so I thank your congregation member, all of you congregation members out there for, for that dedication. I want to tell you a little bit about myself and um, my social justice work that um, I think um, most of us who are doing this type of work will tell you we never intended to uh, be in these spaces. Um, it came because of necessity. And so being a person of color or a person from an oppressed community, I think we often find ourselves realizing that we've been doing social justice work from birth. Um, understanding what it's like to walk in someone's shoes who is targeted in any way, um, who has to 
be able to defend their very existence feels like a lot of work. It feels heavy. But that moment when I realized that I wanted to do something more um, probably started in my second year of college. I attended um, a very small women's college called Cotty College in Nevada, Missouri, which is owned by the PEO Sisterhood, which is a really incredible group of women. And we, as you will, in university settings, they'll do um, a, an event where they'll have um, a cultural fair. And so we were doing a cultural fair. And, and again, this college was very small. So my Diné sister and I set up a little table with one of those little uh, backboards that you see. And we wore our regalia. And we were um, talking to community members. And then we were approached by um, a woman who was probably late 80s from the town um, who engaged with us. And she was very nice. And we had a good conversation about some of our cultural ways. But then she asked us where we lived. And I let her know that I was from Oklahoma, but I attend here at, at Cotty. And she said, well, that's not possible. Um, Indian people aren't, aren't, um, they aren't uh, able to engage in higher learning. And for me, that was a moment of clarity that there were a lot of misunderstandings about who I am and who our people are, um, indigenous people in the community, and how there was a lot of work to be done around um, bridging those gaps. And that moment was pivotal for me. And I think we all have those moments in our lives where we feel that pull, we feel that injustice, we feel that need. And I think any social justice work comes from a need. We're filling a need, and that's as simple as it is. Um, when we get into this work, it becomes much more complicated. But whenever we're looking at the roots, I believe it is. That's the key. We're filling a need. Um, so whenever we're thinking critically about um, uh, today, I hope we will be able to engage in these conversations throughout our community about thinking critically about all the things that we take for granted. Things like holidays or mascots or celebrations or monuments or really anything that's been ingrained in us since, since infancy, since before we were here in this time. We have to think critically about all of those things and find out what are the roots, where were they created and who were they created for? What was the intention behind these, um, these events in our lives? And that's what I'd like to talk today about is this opportunity um, that we have that has been raised up by Black Lives Matter. It has been a catapult for so many communities to be able to engage in these conversations. And we have to, I, I personally, um, owe a lot to the Black Lives community, the Black Lives Matter community, um, for, for really engaging in that work and doing so much to uplift every community. So as we think critically about those things, I, I want to mention an event that happened just recently. We had a sit-in, the indigenous community had a sit-in at the Land Run Monument in Bricktown. And it was an incredible event. We had educators and teachers, indigenous educators, sharing what that must have been like at the time of the land run. 
We also had allies there who put, the, put themselves on the line to protect us. There's an incredible group called War Whites Against Racism who, who literally put their bodies between ours and armed militia that were there to, to disrupt what we, were, um, what we were there for, which was education. And it was the ultimate allyship. But when we were there, um, I think we engaged in healing work because as we talk through and think critically, it really is the root of where that healing starts. Um, so we were, uh, when we talk about these institutions, we have to think critically, even about some of our most cherished memories, things like what university went, we went to and their monikers, like the University of Oklahoma. We say boomer sooner, but do we really know what that means? Talking about the word boomer refers to a group of people who were um, in support of opening Indian territory for settlement, and sooners were the ones who broke the law to race earlier than everyone. And while it has been seen as something that has been um, reimagined, those words, it still has the impact for a lot of our community members to mean something very different. So whenever they score a touchdown, we see a mini land run reenactment happening every time on the field. And those reenactments for us are a reminder of the genocide of our people. And so while they seem innocent and while it seems like something that um, shouldn't have an impact, it really does for many of us. So I ask you to, to really consider what those land runs actually meant. So I'd like to share some facts around that time in history that you probably didn't learn in school. Um, after the Indian Removal Act of 1830, Native people from 65 tribes were forcibly removed from their homeland to Indian territory with promises that they would remain, uh, maintain their sovereignty and this land for all time. Native people from the five tribes formed an alliance to try and establish Indian territory as a native-only state called the state of Sequoia. They drafted a constitution that was later the basis of the constitution for the state of Oklahoma. The government ruled against the proposition, Oklahoma territory and Indian territory would have to merge to be considered for statehood. And so after the government allotted land to the tribal members and introduced blood quantum minimums to keep Indian land in trust, they deemed all other land surplus. There were seven land runs in Indian Territory from 1889 to 1895, and 17 million acres of Native land were taken during the land runs, leaving 10,000 Native people homeless. Native people were not allowed to run in the races to reclaim their homes. So this notion that this land was vast open prairies with nothing and no one on it really is a fairy tale told to ease the conscience of those stealing the land and still today for those who occupy it. There were homes, churches, roads, schools, communities, and so many indigenous people on this land. In some instances, um, there, there's this idea that there was vast open prairie with nothing. And in some cases, people walked right into indigenous homes and took them up. 
So we must think critically about how we tell the story of Oklahoma and how we commemorate it. For, maybe, for me, maybe the most disturbing piece of this miseducation is that we start this indoctrination with children. Um, as you know, many of us in Oklahoma, uh, we participate in land run reenactments when we are in about third or fourth grade, and we cement this idea of romanticizing this, this time in our state's history um, without ever offering the other side. And unfortunately, it's, it's a side that isn't pretty, but it's important to talk about. And there are very simple ways that you can get involved to make sure that there is equity in education by asking your local elementary schools to discontinue these reenactments. As we continue to think critically about things we take for granted, I ask you to consider again holidays, mascots, costumes, monuments, and names. Our community saw a huge victory when the NFL Washington uh, football team announced they would change their mascot. And while our community has been fighting for decades to change these mascots that dehumanize, degrade, and make us targets for violence, we also recognize that it is because of the momentum, again, of Black Lives Matter movement that has catapulted us forward. We have to also um, remember that most of that was motivated by money and not because it was the right thing to do. But as I mentioned, this type of collaboration toward our shared liberation is paramount. It is an example of the power of community and grassroots efforts and having the right elected officials in office who are also collaborators. It is a stark reflection of our community when a simple phrase that Black Lives Matter is controversial. It has brought the bigots from the basement and into our living rooms. Through our smartphones, we can now witness the revolution of our time, which opens up opportunities for hard conversations with those family members, neighbors, coworkers, and friends who perpetuate oppression. And as we continue down this path that we're walking together today to uplift indigenous truths and re-examining names, friends, we must talk about the name of your church. It is difficult for me as an indigenous woman to feel comfortable in a place that bears the name of a vessel that brought colonizers who tried to wipe out my people. While it can be argued that this shit brought those being persecuted for their religious beliefs, we must also recognize they forced their beliefs on a people who didn't need saving. It was a pivotal time that led to the idea of manifest destiny, that you could only own land if you were Christian. Christianity was used as a tool to oppress all original people into poverty and strip them of their ancestral homelands, policy that is still honored today. While we are seeing some change in uh, recent SCOTUS verdicts that are starting to challenge that idea that you can take land from indigenous people, we still have a very long way to go. I know each of us want our homes to be warm, joyful places where all feel welcome. I ask you to re-examine the name of your church home and consider what this word Mayflower means to your indigenous relatives. While it probably hearkens memories of fellowship and goodness for many of this congregation, 
It feels like a darkness that marked the beginning of the end for some of my people, especially in the state with one of the highest indigenous populations. While it can seem a daunting task, I've been a part of renaming of school mascots and it's absolutely doable. I ask you to just take the steps to start by having a conversation. Healing of trauma and of the land began in, began in ways like this. This also opens up a larger conversation and difficult conversation about the complicated relationship between Christianity and indigenous people. During and after relocation, Christian churches and the US government teamed up and sent missionaries across the United States. Different denominations were assigned to different places within the United States. And for Choctaw people, we saw many Presbyterian missionaries in our communities. My great grandpa Pop, who, um, who lived after the time, after the removal and um, is my maternal great grandfather, he taught his children um, that education was paramount to be able to get past um, the, the racism that they were experiencing. He lived during a time when there were signs that said no dogs or Indians. And he was greeted by missionaries who told him, you can be Indian or you can be Christian, but you cannot be both. And that was a pivotal moment for our family members. It was a time of loss of some of our cultural ways because it was a time also of choice to understand that life would be harder if you were identifiably native. So many of these churches moved, uh, and the government moved into the next phase of colonizing indigenous people by taking indigenous children from their homes, sometimes by kidnapping them and keeping them in institutions known as Indian boarding schools. Let me be clear, they were not institutions of education. They were assimilation factories where sexual, physical, and mental abuse were common where experiments were performed on children by adults, by those institutions in conjunction with the US Department of Health. These were schools that had cemeteries on their school grounds where children routinely tried to run away. My grandparents attended and fell in love at Goodland Boarding School for Indians. And that's where my family has its roots. And while they talked fondly of time at Goodland. We also understand that their heritage was also taken away at the same time. And I think we have to recognize that this is the relationship of, the, of Christianity and indigenous people in just my grandparents' lifetime. Conversations about, about the truths that happened in these places and even our churches still have reports from that time and what happened during those, those times during the boarding school eras. And while these boarding schools no longer exist or they have been recreated into something new, the pain and trauma of that time can absolutely still be felt in our community today. Reconciliations have been happening across um, both United States and Canada to talk about this time in history. 
And while those are incredibly important, what's also important is that our communities have spaces to heal. I am lucky to be the co-founder with my Choctaw sister, Kendra Wilson Clements, of an organization called Matriarch, where we are creating spaces for our community of indigenous women and children to come together to both understand oppression, educate ourselves about the issues that impact us, and then do the hard work of healing. It takes some time to understand when your parents or grandparents were raised in a boarding school and they're unable to show you affection, understanding that it isn't because they didn't love you, it's because they weren't shown that affection either. And so that's how trauma healing is happening in our communities. Now, as we move forward, we're seeing that invisibility may be one of the greatest threats against our community. We are very rarely represented in media, in legislation, and in, in any kind of pop culture, we're usually seen in a historic sense. There's an incredible study out by Illuminatives right now that sheds some light on how we can better see indigenous people as contemporary and not just surviving, but thriving people. Because those are the things that are gonna change the rates that we see in our community. It can make us feel small when faced with, these, with the machine that is racism and oppression. So what can we do? We can show up. We can commit to learn more and do better. We can promise to have the hard talks with our family and in our congregations. We can feel all the feelings and promise to break harmful, cyclical, oppressive habits because that's how trauma healing works. That's how we heal the land. We love our community and our relatives so much that this is the only option. Yakoki, thank you for your open hearts and willingness to walk with me today. Yakoki for being a congregation that fights for equity and shows up. I'm with you in solidarity. To peace a la I'll see you soon. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching from Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.